Let's go on a round of introductions then. Um, starting off with the way I'm seeing, I'm seeing Baby Grandma, then Dan P, then Freckle, then Golden Swan, then Radham, then me. Okay, uh, I'm Baby Grandma. My pronouns are they, she, and I have run a mutual aid collective for the past four years. Hell yeah. All right. So, Freckle. Uh, sure. I'm Freckle. Uh, I have been doing uh, coverage of and discussion about uh, police abolition for uh, quite a while now. Um, in addition, I'm a volunteer for Food Not Bombs in my local area. And uh, yeah, that's kind of where I'm coming from. Heck yeah. Can we hear from Dan P? Uh, sure. Um, so I have a degree in architecture. Uh, in my last year, I joined the Occupy Wall Street info group. Uh, from there, it was like a consensus working group. And then when I came back home, I kind of ran the local Occupy chapter kind of as a zombie org. It wasn't really that active. It just attrition down. So mm. I became the serving captain of local food, not bombs as well. Um, then join the Green Party, where I have been a ballot filler candidate uh, for two executive offices, um, then, and also a local, uh, what call it, officer, uh, mostly secretary, and besides a number of other community projects, which I don't have to little list, I'm now on the managing team or committee, whatever, working group, whatever kind of ideology would say that you call it, of the, the local community radio station, of which I produce uh, my podcast, The Three Left Chef. Okay. Can you pronounce that one more time? The Three Left Show. The Three Just Left Show. The Three Left Show. Okay, gotcha. Yes. Gotcha, gotcha. All right. It's multi-tendency. All right, so can we get Golden Swan to introduce themselves um, and everything? Yeah, hi. I'm uh, on here. I'm Golden Swan, but I am Trey Misanthrope of the Mayhem Calling. I am a they, them, and I do a lot of, uh, mostly in work, I do a lot of uh, unionizing, uh, lecturing, I guess is the best way to say it, but I don't, I'm, we're not currently in a union because we work retail, but we are, uh, we are planning a union co coalition. Okay. Yeah. So my name is Taj Benjamin. Yeah. I'm on a YouTube channel called Bars and Joysticks. 
pretty much we covered video games, music, hip hop in particular, um, and and culture. And with things like video games and with hip hop, they both intersect with politics. So I cover a lot of the political arena um, that they intersect with. Um, and yeah, that's about me. I've I've done a little bit of local organizing, not not too much. Um, a little bit of online organizing like this panel. Um, and yeah, but you know, despite how much you dip your toes into uh, the action pool of doing actions, whether in person or online, I find myself always eventually getting to some sort of form of leftist infighting. All right, cool. Yeah. yeah, so let's just, we can just like roll through the questions then. All right. I, um, I'm a pre-law student, so I don't, I guess we're talking every, after everybody else's intro, I'm like, maybe I should say more. I'm a pre-law student. Um, I started a mutual aid fund for a podcast um, that shall not be named, but it's like a leftist podcast to Midwestern dads. Maybe some people can, um, I don't know, put two and two together. Um, Yeah, just like that. Um, So I also am currently working with the IWW here in uh, West Philly to unionize a um, small tech-based nonprofit. Um, I started a group called Beauty Industry Workers' Rights because I'm also a licensed cosmetologist. And I uh, was noticing the misclassification that was running running rampant um, in that industry. Uh, I talk a lot about the nonprofit industrial complex, um, and that's a big part of why I decided to go into law. Um, because I think that there needs to be some sort of, um, changes, (laughs) lots of changes, um, to the way that things are run, um, in the nonprofit world. Um, so I do a little bit of like direct action worker organizing, lots of online organizing, lots of mutual aid community care with my collective, um, metamorphosis collective, um, we're currently in transition, but we based our model off of Food Not Bombs, um, but for clothes and hygiene products, um, and specifically uh, LGBT youth focus. So there's my actual spiel. Hell yeah. All right. So the first thing, the first hog point for leftist infighting, as this panel is about, leftist fighting within the left, um, is anecdotes of leftist infighting. Um, things that stick out to us as like, the titular, not titular, the, the like the main thing when you think about leftist and fight, like the breakout leftist and fight in your mind. Um, it can either be like a personal experience or like something you've witnessed bigger creators do. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? Who wants to go first on that? All right, Frackle. We can't get a ticket. Take oh. Okay, so um, it's uh, not so much um, an. I, uh, something that I've personally experienced, but I do a lot of, so first of all, this is my first panel that I've been a part of. What I typically do is one-on-one conversations with people because I mm-hmm. find those much more productive, but, um, a, a trend that I've noticed on a lot of, uh, content creators, especially here on Twitch, many start out, uh, with, you know, solid intentions, material, uh, a measured tone, a productive tone, but for, you know, right or wrong, that just doesn't really attract as many clicks as uh, mm. getting into the blood sport stuff. And there 
is kind of a siren song, and I've seen several small creators blow up their channels by jumping on to doing the drama of the day stuff and, you know, getting in on all of the gossip stuff and abandoning any of the actual education and pushing people towards uh, actually organizing and all the stuff that actually gets shit done. Um, and it's uh, part of that is that's where money is. And I get if you're trying to do it as a, for a living, it uh, there's a strong appeal to go where the money is, but it's uh, it's disheartening. <laughs> Yeah. I definitely agree with that. Lots yeah. of like shock value. Yeah, I see what you're talking about as far as like making like the blood sports things. It's kind of like it's kind of like using like performance drugs, right? It it's like you'll get like a good return but then there's like a cost that'll just kind of rip things away like getting the blood sports yeah sure more people are engaged so they can hear more opinions and form different ideas off those opinions and you can see people like knock those opinions up or down um but at the same time it's like it it garners audiences and people expecting blood sports and it normalizes the blood sports thing either in personal interactions online on twitter because we all know i don't know if you guys have twitter but that shit that shit's fucking toxic sometimes. Right now I'm getting shot on on Twitter for some shit. I said one thing wrong and now I'm getting quote tweeted like crazy. Um, Ash, can we each go uh, with our anecdotes and then we'll react as a group? Yeah, fair. That's fair. Okay. Um, so I guess I'll go next since we're not doing this stack. Um, so my, my anecdotes kind of go from actual like organizational side of things where uh, the big kind of like say the ISO is one trot group that just split in the last year and they basically just decide not to keep going the other kind that i've personally experienced or at least i've been in the room for is the more kind of individualized kind of infighting where a group has basically excluded a person or two based on its policies based on some collective decision making that occurred democratically so even though because of it, say the group is large enough, it's more than 10 people, you can't really do full consensus. Example, over the last so many years, the Green Party, which has been kind of half trot or Luxembourgist socialists and half kind of liberals or left-wing Democrats, um, has been slowly in the language and the platform making ourselves more of a socialist party to the point where uh, and now, basically, the party has been taken over by socialists like myself, um, like our last presidential candidate, Howie Hawkins, which many people didn't even know existed. Um, and so, like in 2016, when we passed our post-capitalist plank, saying that we are at least a post-capitalist party, there was one delegate there who was an identified capitalist, and he obviously felt like now an outsider. Similarly. When the Green Party, which for the longest time has had the positions that we are, say, for modern science, and that means, you know, in, in a universal healthcare system, you can have alternatives, but it's modern science first. And in fronting a doctor as our candidate a few times, it kind of pisses off anti vaxxers who might be identified as Greens, or in case of or in the case of the TERFs, that it's always been our policy to identify, to take people as they identify, um, even within our gender parity rules, as they are called gender parity, not sex parity. 
Um, so we have many turfs in the Green Party that are haven't left, but have created uh, conflict hmm. uh, with no remorse as they harass our Lavender Caucus and uh, and all the, all kinds of the and Lavender Caucus is that a the pro trans caucus? They are the trans caucus okay, trans got it. slash queer caucus. Okay, and the women's caucus backed them up as well. By the way, um, good, good. in fact, all but see it was the Georgia State Green Party which. Um, Benjamin Dixon of the Black Agenda Report had died, so you had this—it's called the turf. Um, who like they—they they had like a minimum quorum, and they passed this resolution in fa- like in favor, you know, the turf constitution, you could call it. And most of the rest of the party was like, "What the?" F-? And uh, and obviously, the Lavender Caucus like wanted them disaffiliated for this. There was a more of a modern position of okay, let's reconcile. Can we get them in a room, virtual, of course, to hammer something out uh, or some kind of like agreement? And Turfs didn't want to negotiate, basically, so they were disaffiliated for that. And so there are a number of there was one in our local chapter uh, who's also an SA member. Uh, who is our actual only local candidate this year for school board? He came in a very close third. Um, out of he was beaten. He was a cis head man, but beaten by two women of color. But they're in the Democratic Party orbit. Anyway, he's he's apparently a turf through uh, like his in interpretation of Marx Marxism, um, and not good politics, which is kind of one of the themes I can go on. The other theme in interleft fighting that I've observed, and this goes in the non-organizational but more collectives, anarchistic, uh, dual power stuff. Uh, so it's it's like different thing, different kinds of infighting. On the left, communist or left libertarian side, it seems to always come from interpersonal conflict more than anything else. Uh, a group called Margination here, uh, my area, Albany, New York, Troy, uh, tri-state area. They were a group of, I guess. Philly organizers actually that moved to Troy um, raised a lot of money from tech billionaire tech bros basically to do anti-capitalist stuff but um they had interpersonal issues um and this happened in um BLM groups this is after the like first rendition of BLM not from last year and they fell apart because you know some of them date and then they in two people date two people break up and then the group of t- 10 or a dozen has to, they split in half based on who they are supporting in the breakup. As if breakups can't happen and everyone can still actually be friends, but who caused the breakup or why? And, and of course, as an aromantic, I think it's all bullshit and uh, hate, hate seeing that happen. And it hasn't happened to me, but I've been in part of it, but mostly because it's, I don't know, more professional, more let's just kind of do our thing. Um, and it's not a tight-knit family, though. So you kind of that up. There's an air of bureaucracy. So I'll leave it at that. Can I go next? Uh, yeah. Okay. So um, I said that, and then I was putting ice in my freezer. <laughs> um, so the, the thing that really stands out for me the most, um, there's... So I'm a pre-law student, right? Um, And I was a policy debater in high school. I've always been very academic. I've always been very theory inclined. So, you know, I was a big reader, very academic. And um, 
I think that there is a language barrier and gap that creates conflict. So there's times where we all agree with each other, but we just aren't using um, accessible language. So accessibility causes a lot of um, unintentional infighting within the left. So we can all be saying the same things and coming to the same conclusions, but we're not understanding it in the same way, comprehending it in the same way, and we're not making an effort to do that, right? So, and, and this looks so many different ways. Where are the interpreters, right? We're on a panel right now. Where's the subtitles? Where's the interpreter? That's a, a huge mm. group of people that are not included in this conversation now, right? So we have to think about who is not a part of the conversation. How do we bring those people into conversation? And then how do we speak to those people and what language do we use? Another example of that is the generational stuff that goes on. Like, um, you know, we have these micro trends, like really quick, fast paced moving um, trends that happen with the internet and like having access to technology. And I feel like some of the elders who've been organizing for a really long time, who deserve to be treated with a certain level of respect and understanding are just immediately not being listened to because they don't know the language and they're not using the proper terminology. We're not giving them the space to learn. We're not, you know, calling people in to have conversation about, hey, this is why that language is harmful or this is what that terminology means now, right? And so that's one thing that I notice a lot is there's this huge generational divide and then also um, the intersection of disability and the left is like really lacking. I'm a disabled um, person, I'm neurodivergent. Um, I have a lot of different intersections and something that I have noticed is the people that we're leaving out of conversations are the people who are having conversations amongst themselves. And to be honest with you, any type of leftist infighting that I've experienced has been miscommunication um, or, you know, this kind of like interpersonal stuff that we touched on earlier. Whoa. But I really think we need to start thinking about accessibility in the terms of everything. These panels we do, um, you know, I, I host a support group. I'm a peer counselor and we have an interpreter, right? Like we had to budget for that, but a budget is a moral document too, right? So we exist under capitalism. We exist under these systems of oppression, but we have responsibility to create an equitable conversation. So there's so many people who are automatically not a part of the conversation because they don't want to have to advocate for themselves over and over again, right? Like they don't want to have to feel like they have to learn all this new language. It's very intimidating is what I'm getting at. So mm. what I really like think that we should be doing more of is not like dumbing down the concepts, but figuring out an accessible way to communicate effectively emotional intelligence, right? Like really thinking about, you know, we're on the same team. And I think that that's what I noticed the most is just like, we forget we're on the same team. 
Uh, we exclude people without meaning to. And through those exclusions creates conflict. And yeah, I guess that's my bit. Yeah, that's that's a good perspective awesome. I didn't uh, think about. Most definitely. Uh, do you mind if I hop in and kind of uh, build off that? Yeah, no, that's a big issue I actually had when I first uh, started getting more involved with leftist causes was that a lot of it wasn't acceptable or not accessible. I um, I have ADHD and I have dyslexia and just, you know, I have a big issue with like trying to like process thoughts all at once. And when I first like started coming to leftist spaces, there were a lot of people who were just using like purely academic language or they're like, oh, well, you have to read this much of Marx or this much. And to me, Ooh. that's just like, don't work. Don't get me wrong. I love reading. But at the same time, when I'm like, OK, but what about this particular situation? What am I, you know, for example, one of the big issues is, as you can see, I have the good old anarchist. A, I'm part of the anarchist community. And one of the big issues I have is that a lot of anarchists just hate communists. And we pretty much want the same thing. There's just like minor differences in there. Like. One of my good friends is uh, YouTuber Luna Oi. So she, I mean, she's obviously like a dyed in the wool red communist. But we all, when I talk to her, we have the same end goal. We have the same end goal of ending capitalism, creating a stateless society, you know, ending unjust hierarchies and creating a more equitable world. But for some reason, because she uses the term communist, because she, you know, is a uh, follower of the Marxist Leninist uh, Ho Chi Minh, you know, viewpoint, it's like we don't look at the similarities and we just look at, oh, well, you believe, you know, bread lines and gulags and shit like that. And it's like, no, no, we we understand like we understand that there are issues in the past, but her whole thing is she's trying to figure she's tr like a part of a coalition that is trying to help figure out ways to end that. And I mean. You know, don't get me wrong. I have my issues with like anything that involves some sort of centralized government, which is why I don't consider myself a, gov a communist. I'm more for like pure democracy. But we can get to that point once we get past the, you know, past the past the capitalist stage. You know, we can argue all day long right now whether or not communism, anarchists, so sock Dems, you know, if that's the best way to do it. But a, you know. If it's not accessible to people who are either just coming in or who have disabilities or who might not even quite understand what to start with. And if we don't just get past our minor differences, go towards the same goal. Yeah, it's 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 insane how much we argue over the minor things, basically, is what I'm saying. And how as, you know, a community where people who say, oh, we are welcoming tolerant but we are so intolerant of anyone wanting to learn mm, that's good that's good and i say this quite a bit where because i've had i've had personal conflicts with people that are just different on like on the how far left they are i'm i'm not as far left as a lot of the people i consider allies right and i i'm, I'm be open mask off i'm a sock in but <laughs> But we are so far from, like, being at a Sockdom territory where, like, we are all on the same bus, the same darn bus. I'm, I can say darn, right? On the same darn bus. When we get to my bus stop, I'll get off of the Sockdom port. You guys can head as far left on that bus as you want. But I don't know if, we are, if we're going to get off that bus in our lifetimes. I just don't know. 
I'm not confident in that. So getting stuck in the weeds of, oh, we're in the same bus. We, we have even, different are ideologies. Are we even on the bus? Hopefully we're on the bus. <laughs> I, I don't like that bus. question because that's going to be, <laughs> that's a painful question to ask. <laughs> like, I, I hope we are. Well, there's this comic. Um, I mean, it's just like a one picture con- uh, political cartoon where you have some people on a carousel and you have a bus called Revolution. And basically it says like leaves when full. And then and there's this carousel and everybody's on the carousel. And then people are like, why are you on this bus? You're not moving anywhere. At least we're going somewhere. Yeah. And then the carousel has reform. Oh, you know. no. Yeah. I, I understand. Yeah. I, you, you explained that comic pretty well. Like, I visualized it right there. Dang. Dang. Um, I think that we have to deconstruct and decolonize, personally. Talk to the indigenous people. You know, we're sitting here talking about structures <laughs> that we created not that long ago like if you think about it like all of these terminologies and things like last 200 years maybe i mean i i'm you know what i'm not a historian but i i'm just saying like we did exist as humans in a a much healthier way um before and you know we we as we did a genocide um we did the genocide stuff and imperialism and things like that and multiple genocide not, yeah we did a little genocide on on the side um and a lot and a bunch and a ton of times and i think that what we can learn from that is like hey like what are the indigenous people focusing on right now what can we do to decolonize our conversations surrounding the issues that matter for our survival um and you know right now that's what my focus has been is following indigenous content creators listening to what they're saying because the thing is it's not it's not like these concepts are new like mutual aid is an indigenous practice community care collective care that's an indigenous practice like we're going back to what was torn apart right so that's what I feel like we need to remember is like, we have all these conversations about things that were created by um, an imperialistic society. When we do have a wealth of knowledge, indigenous individuals who still are living right now, talking to us about what is the most imperative um, things to be focusing on. And right now that is line three from what I have been seeing with the indigenous content creators that I follow. And so I think like, if we are really going to get somewhere in our lifetimes, which I think we can do Taj, we have to be constantly deconstructing, decolonizing and centering indigenous voices because, um, this, uh, all of the options that we have right now, I don't know, it can be really intimidating, but just think about where we were two years ago, you know? Like, that's what I like to think about is just like where we were two years ago compared to now, even like, I think about a lot of my experiences organizing, trying to run a mutual aid collective before the pandemic happened and nobody knowing like what the f- I meant by mutual aid. Right. And so like it's, it's just, and the thing is, it's not, 
I am, I didn't come up with mutual aid. It's an indigenous practice I learned about, right? And like, there's a, an author who's, who's cited quite a bit, Dean Spade. Um, he wrote a book about mutual aid and he gets cited a lot. But like, the truth of the matter is, is that this uh, is from oral histories of indigenous people. And so we have that existing right now and they're so desperately wanting to have conversations with us but the left is not centering that and i think that that is a huge it's a huge um problem yeah for all of us that rat rat home are you back see if we all knew sign language just saying i did want to ask um so many skills to learn maybe grandma uh when you said you hired an interpreter, I'm actually curious where you go to do that. If, if, because like I, I, I genuinely have no idea. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple of different routes that you can go. I'm in community with a lot of deaf and hard of hearing individuals, so it's easy for me to just kind of post on Facebook and be like, "Hey, who's willing to interpret?" But um, there are um programs and you can look up there's um discounted and sometimes even free programs that provide interpret interpreters um so you would just like type in your city hello, hello. um low cost interpreter and there's there's different programs in different areas here in philly we have so here in philly we have a hey, lot of resources uh, but you can just Google your area and then free or low cost interpreters. For my interpreter, it's actually somebody that me and my um, co-founder, we are in community with. Now and so we're doing a trade. Um, right. But there's there's okay. plenty of options out there. There's grants for people to get interpreters. Okay, back. One um, second, rap. One second. Lots of options. Yeah. So interpreters are out there. You just got to look for them. And also, you know, valuing the it's I just think that, you know, a budget really is a moral document. And if we're not taking into account um, captions, interpreting, even like, you know, the different like talk to people who are actually deaf and hard of hearing and ask them, you know, like I'm not even the best person to ask is really right. what I'm getting at. Mm, yeah. um, mm. So, you know, you have to be in community with all types of different people. If we really want an equitable um, community or collective or movement, whatever you want to call it, then, you know, you have to be in community with these people. And then that's how you make the connections, right? Thank you. I want to jump in. The... It's kind of... It's why I like the Greens, because there's a disability caucus. The, their job is literally to bring up these issues all the time. Uh, the other thing that comes to mind is like in centering indigenous voices, it's why the left and generally speaking, uh, including when the Greens were formed uh, but with 70s, 80s, it's why, it's why the left got, went anti-nuclear, not only weapons, but in power. In centering indigenous voices, it became clear that even nuclear power was a albatross. And to see, technocrats slash, you know, whatever you want to call them, kind of online lefties talk of mm -hmm. it, like literally bash other lefties. 
because they're not nuclear supporters, because they point out that it's still a corporate industry and they do all the bad that corporate America does. And even though, and if say New York, when we clo- we're closing our nuclear plants, yes, we're burning more gas now, but that's not the less prerogative. That's the, that's uh, Andy's prerogative in not building the offshore wind that we've been pushing for since 2010. Mm. Um, okay. So I have yeah. a question. Can we get a battle back in here real quick? Hi, I'm going to do my actual introduction. Yeah. Yeah, go for it, Brad. Um, hi, I'm Radhom. Um, I am an Australian lefty Twitch streamer. Uh, I have a long history as a circus performer, and I paint miniatures while covering various political videos. Uh, unlike some of the people here, I am not an actual organizer. I have not run for political office. I'm just a political nerd and a terminally online person. So please use that as the filter to understand my input into this discussion. Now that introduction's out of the way, um, just sharing a couple little anecdotes about leftist infighting. Um, uh, So as I said, I'm quite a terminally online person. I enjoy spending time in various different kinds of online spaces, some based around the hobbies I enjoy, some just based around politics. So this is where I witness and experience most of my leftist infighting. A lot of it does seem to come from, as has been touched upon already in the panel, um, this friction between people on the authoritarian left and people on the libertarian left. Um, so your you know, hardline Marxist-Leninists with your passionate anarchists. There is some degree of reaching across the aisle. I seem to see more reaching across the aisle from the anarchist side of things than from the authoritarian side of things. I do wonder if this is because authoritarianism promotes groups, groupthink and sticking to the party line. But me, as someone mm. who is somewhat anarchist, may just be biased around this. Uh, I have seen quite a toxic leveraging of... Uh, no leftist infighting rules in online leftist spaces. So these tend to be spaces that are being moderated by people on the orth left. They will have a rule that states no leftist infighting, and it will be, A, unequally implied, so it is applied more to restrict people that they don't like, which is a real problem, Um, and B, uh, disagreement is seen as infighting. So if someone mm. says, hang on, Stalin did bad things, they will point to rule three, no leftist infighting. And if you keep on saying that maybe the Holdemore wasn't great, boot you. And thus the rule, no leftist infighting, becomes a way to enforce their own hegemony. Mm. That, that is, is a good a nuanced point. point. Are these, um, question, are these groups for like ML discussion? Discussion slash are these ML groups um, or are they these groups, are, uh, discussion groups? These are groups that are billed as being general leftist groups. But what mm-hmm. usually happens, so a lot of L- ML groups have this idea of uh, entryism that they pursue. Just, 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 um, just uh, clarifying. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're general discussion groups, but they tend to end up with a couple of MLs on the moderation team who then get more and more of those in and edge out anyone who isn't of that ideology. Uh, I I have met some genuinely good and honest honest MLs and quote-unquote tankies online. I'm not painting this with a complete brush here. Speaking of brushes, I am painting miniatures while we're having this discussion. But yeah, 
And on the more real world side of things, what I've seen tends to be, uh, it was noted before that there's usually an interpersonal aspect. I've seen that happen. There's also, so we have a group here in Australia called SALT, the Socialist Alternative. Um, SALT are notorious in Australia for showing up to other protest movements and trying to co-opt them um, to just being about them and their organisation. Oh, I hate that. That tends to turn a lot, cause a lot of friction between different left, leftist groups. Yeah, that boils um, me. It's a, a common experience. Um, and then we've got stuff around... I guess what I'd say is political groupthink. So here in Australia, down in Melbourne, there were two different socialist parties uh, that formed together into, I think, the Victorian Socialist Party so that they could cover more ground. Uh, then there were some uh, sexual harassment allegations around the new leader of the party who had been the leader of one of the old groups the members of the old group closed rank around him and all of the new people and all of the people who were in the previous group that had joined up with them just went, nope, I'm out, left, understandably. And now Victoria has been left with one very weak socialist party instead of two reasonably weak socialist parties. Mm. So that's Dang. infighting yes technically infighting but also infighting that came because mm -hmm. the party closed ranks around a toxic person that they should have just booted because they relied on that person's cult of personality that that if kind I'm... of leads me into another line that i that i wanted to i'm i'm sorry dan p um i think this might coincide with what you're about to say just like my intuition is telling me is how wide or narrow is the window of beliefs that you're willing to work with and why is that kind of relates to what you're saying, Dan? Actually, no, I was going to segue oh. into kind of my, I, I guess, prepared notes. Oh yeah. In, dude. So like as leftists, we're really concerned about the means of production, of course, the means of life. But when it comes to questions of power or politics, there's a kind of a means of governance that we're all, that we are completely missing. Now, in some organizations, this exists in some form, like maybe using Robert's rules. But for the most part, we are we have been completely neglected in any kind of education, political education, on governance. And this includes courts, right? As anarchists, and I'm speaking broadly, you know, speaking of anarchists, but even MLs too, we don't want to use capitalist courts. We don't want to use the man's courts. But we that means we really need our own. And the reason why a lot of these things happen and why it becomes mob justice or whatever is because there's a lack of what's called accountability structures and such. So um, solution-based uh, local food, not bombs that I was in, um, well, I, whatever, I'm not the captain anymore, but whatever. Uh, we formed a safe space committee, which would be the, enfor not the enforcer, but when someone violates the rules of safe space. An arbitrator. Right. But like we they would make guidelines for what makes a safe space in the uh, called the info shop we were using for our meals. And if someone broke them, the safe space committee would assess the and, it, and this goes to any kind of someone say uh, we even had a 
tip line of sorts, you can call mm-hmm. anonymously and just say, this person harassed me. You don't have to give a name so much, but then the committee would then have the authority to investigate, determine what happened or didn't happen and, uh, and say, okay, and do some restorative justice and that, okay, you're going to do some feminist readings and come back with maybe just like what you learned a week or two later. And in the case of person who did the harassing, uh, was making the, um, some of the meal preppers creeped out. Um, we, when he came back and said like, oh, I didn't do the readings, didn't learn anything. Don't want to, uh, I didn't do anything wrong. Fine. You're banned from the cooking now. Um, and, and well, and that's disturbing too, but he didn't come to the survey. So, so there's an example in a lot of groups, this includes the green party too. Um, we do our best to arbitrate when there's a conflict. Uh, but a lot of these groups don't even try mm-hmm. to have such a mechanism. And if there is, then it may be a committee of people who aren't trusted. Um, maybe they're not elected, or I don't know who these people are doing the investigating. Maybe they're friends with the accused. Mm. You know, it needs to be a, a party of people who are neutral, and maybe they need to be applied ad hoc. Um, kind of anecdotal, that's the like, kind of measure yeah. that you can only really have once a group or organization reaches a certain size. So, you know, if your mutual aid collective is like 10 people who are working together to get some food to the local homeless, then can you, you can't really have an independent accountability body. But if you've got 50 to 100 people, suddenly that becomes much more, mm. yeah, viable thing to, to have. Uh, which I think it is a really cool and important set of ideas, um, especially when we get to official levels of organizing, either politically or with social assistance organization groups, um, having those accountability structures baked in on an institutional level, I think at the very least can you know help people feel more safe that if there is something that goes wrong, like happened in Melbourne or might, might like we might happen around, say, disability issues or something, um, then there is a method of recourse that can be sought without that person having to commit social suicide just to be heard. So mm. can I add to this? Because um, it has brought up two questions for me. Um, my first question is these groups, you keep bringing up these caucuses, the disability caucus, et cetera. Um, are these groups being paid? And if not, then... Like, cause I think this is, this is something that, um, I feel like comes up for me a lot is like, um, in the corporate world, which I also have a little bit of experience with somehow don't tell them, um, that I'm here. Haha. Um, but there's something called diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I feel like we can really learn from that as, uh, as organizers, there's a whole sect of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And what happens is there is, um, like they do equity audits, but they they do it in a very um, distinctive and like structured and organized way. And like f- for corporate America, their end goal is like, you know, let's get good PR, but we can learn from those structures and utilize them in leftist spaces. So my biggest thing is if there's a disability caucus that is once again, unpaid labor, you're going to lose out on the most important voices because it's a privilege to be able to give your time 
for free in the systems and structures that we exist under right now. So if you're not paying those people, then your accountability structure already is flawed, in my opinion. Hmm. But then again, like there comes in, you also mentioned there's like this disconnect between the legal system and organizing, which, hey, I'm a free law student. I literally argue um, with people about this a lot because I think that, um, yes, I agree, I'm an abolitionist. I think all of it should go away. But at the same time, it is here right now. And there's actually uh, really effective ways that we can um, leverage our rights that we have that we're not, we're purposefully not being told about, right? So for example, um, I was able to get settlement checks for, I don't know, 20 plus uh, cosmetologists. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not an attorney. Um, I, I don't do any type of um, attorney type of sorry, work. Sorry, forgive my, forgive my ignorance. What's a cosmetologist? Oh, I, hair, skin, and nails. I went Thank to you. beauty school. Um, so I, I think that we, we have to start thinking outside of the box about how, what labor we pay for, right? And if we don't pay for that labor, who is being excluded? And, and that is so important too. And if we're asking for labor from disabled people who already have limited capacity under the, the, the structures that we exist in. So I am a, a disabled working class person without parents, right? So a lot of these organizations that call, like ask me to pay dues automatically can't do it. These organizations that expect me to be able to get to the meetings well, I don't have a car and I don't know how to drive and I don't have money for the transportation, right? So it is a privilege to be able to be in these spaces. And then it's people with that certain amount of privilege who are trying to create accountability when really the people who need to be in conversation about accountability are the people who don't have the time to dedicate to an accountability process without being paid for it. So I think that that's really what I'm trying to get at is like, if people are not being paid for this labor, for this education, then you're going to get shitty education. You know, you're going to get a shitty accountability. Yeah. And then, you know, people want to talk about like, you know, <sighs> I don't know, the argument that comes up the most for me when I bring up this point of just like, we can't, we cannot continue to burn ourselves out. And if we're not paying for labor for things like community care, accountability, um, structures of accountability and education, then we're going to get shitty accountability, structures of accountability and education. Damn. Damn, respond. So this is like accessibility equals power. I never really thought about it that way. Oh, certainly. So yeah, I definitely am interested in a response if yeah. Todd is cool with that. So first off, there are very few. I think we maybe have the Green Party. And it's, God, we're a national party with like a quarter million registered people anyway. We own two paid staffers. Um, it's probably the same could be said of any organization, including and DSA. Problem. Am I yeah, of, of course, you're right. Now, let me... Of course, yeah. It's it's a problem with all organizations. Now, there's there's two kind of responses. You either 
become a nonprofit and accept, uh, like, say, the um, radio station I'm in, where we accept grants from health insurance companies and any other type of place we can get it because money freaking matters, especially if you got to pay rent. Um, and of course, even my nonprofits, a lot of people are also still on unpaid. It's completely volunteer. But again, that's a freaking problem. No one's actually responsible even for picking up the trash. And we have to negotiate amongst ourselves who's going to do these chores, whatever. And then it's the person who's maybe most able bodies to me, which, okay. But otherwise, when, yes, when we're talking about actual like organizing and facilitation work and teaching work, which my private shame is I'd like to be teaching more people how to facilitate and run meetings. And because uh, those are the means of governance that a lot of people are missing, even you know, on Twitch, on most of these panel discussions, not your Taj, uh, but well, where's the stack <laughs> taken? Where's the time limits? You know, where's the uh, whatever? This is more free form and we're only five, six. Yeah. So the other side of it is to have due paying members like a union does, which the Green Party is attempting to a long time now going from the ups and downs of fundraising, getting some big ticket donors or something like that, or only fundraising when we have a presidential candidate or we're only able to fundraise. But that's terrible for local organizing. It means state chapters have nothing. Um, but we've slowly been switching to due-paying membership, which, yes, is for the working poor, makes it inaccessible. But, of course, we wouldn't really require it. We don't require the dues for to do to participate we're only it's something that we want to propagate so we can actually pay uh, pay ourselves um right. and we'll yeah. be able to and have organizations that can fight properly until we do it which is why like i really love howie hawkins because this is something he's been chiming about for um since 06 i think or especially 2010. And... So this seems like a bit of a chicken and the egg yeah. situation. Yeah. yeah. So it, ideally we want is. to be paying these people, but also in order to get organizations yeah. to the size and with enough people that the organizations have enough money to pay for these services, to make them quality, the organizations have to rely on a fair bit of volunteer labor. I think also something that could be added is like financial transparency, transparency. We're taught to hide our access to resources and our financial um, capabilities. But if we are to be truly mutual aid, which is my focus, right? I run a mutual aid collective. It's who can give and giving equitably, equitably based upon what you have. Why don't we create financial transparency sheets, right? And then hold ourselves accountable to what we do have access to. And for a lot of people, that makes them uncomfortable. But I think it's absolutely important because otherwise, you know, like for so the model that my collective is under um, is like nobody gets paid. But sometimes we do like a mutual aid fund and get money collect from the community fundraising, yada, yada. That was not sustainable. I don't recommend it. And I do think that a workers owned co-op with like i don't know like there's so many different options but i think it starts with financial transparency because if we're not being truthful with each other about what access we have to finances and resources then there's no way for us to have an equitable 
entrance into organizing, right? So if we start having these conversations about, hey, I have this inheritance, I have, you know, and these are things that we're literally taught not to do. We are not, we're taught to not talk about money, right? But like, what if we did? What if we did? And then everybody gave what they could based on this financial transparency. Um, and then that could create a sliding scale dues that start at zero, right? Depending on your situation. And um, the, a group that I organized with that I won't name um, because I'm not an official member anymore, we did a financial transparency sheet in the beginning um, of our vetting process. Oh. And then when you came in, what based that on like? financial transparency, then you had a certain accountability to supporting either with time or with, you know, like, hey, I have a car. It's not just it's not just money. This is for, this is for the resources. I see. This is for the members. You're not talking about transparency for the org, which, of course, should exist. But this right. is, you're talking for about for members, each of the members. For the members, not for ah. everyone, not for everybody yeah. involved, but like for the Kind of like an income tax sheet. How did that, how did that right. kind of play out? As far it played as out really well. The organization's doing really phenomenal work. I still do wow. um, auxiliary work with them. Uh, I'm affiliated, but I don't have permission to like say their name, so I don't want to. Um, yeah, you don't but, have to say the name. Yeah, it actually ended up working out really well in the beginning. It was super uncomfortable, um, especially when I was looking at everyone else's and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I really, I'm really down Looking at the, like, at the capitalist yeah, power levels. Do people really have this much money? Fuck. I was so confused. Like, I was like, whoa, I've been talking myself into thinking that other people were in similar situations than me and that is just not true you find out about inheritance access to transportation and cars we have to give each other the trust of knowing this information so that we can effectively so that you know the the poorest among us are not the ones constantly donating into the mutual aid fund right we can't have but also so that you collectively know what kind of resources and like not just monetary resources but resources based around time transport etc you can pull together from where in order to make the maximum impact so it's not just a a mutual accountability thing it's something that allows you to make effective tactical decisions as an organization absolutely Mm -hmm. yeah i'm gonna hop in real quick i know frackle wants to say something but like that's kind of where I stand because we all like for me, I work two jobs and I'm, I pretty much had to take today off just so we can do this panel. Damn. But I'm just like, Oh, thank you for making that dedication. Yeah. No, absolutely. I I love, I I love these kind of discussions. So, but yeah, like, and on top of that, even still with my two jobs, I have a lot of bills to pay. So like whenever I don't, I'm not part of any organization right now. I'm looking at ones we have in town seeing if there's something viable here and if not i plan on starting one but it's like that's something that may i never even thought about a financial transparency sheet that would help out a lot with any sort of organization we have in town right
bite to eat. He wants no bull and a lot of talk that gives no bread and meat. So left to three, so left to three, to the work that we must do. March on in the workers' united front, for you are a worker too. And just because he's human, he doesn't like a pistol to his head. He wants no servant under him and no boss overhead. So left to three, so left to three, to the work that we must do. March on in the workers' united front, for you are a worker too. And just because he's a worker, his job is all his own. The liberation of the working class is the job for the on in the workers' united front, for you are a worker too, for you are a worker too. Michael, you've been very patient. I'm going to kind of hope everyone gives you a chance to talk. Okay, so... Um, this is where I'm going to, uh, hopefully not ruffle too many feathers, but, uh, about a, a few of the things that I've, uh, kind of been so rolling around in my head. Okay. So first of all, back a few topics, um, on not just accessibility, but also kind of touching on briefly the subject that, uh, that. Uh, John brought up a little bit was uh, the idea of who all is actually being included in conversations just based on like ideology, basically. And one of the things uh, that I think the left is really, really bad at is actually taking the time to to reach liberals. And I know <laughs> pain in the butt. Um, liberals, but I'm technically a liberal, actually. Yeah, at the end of the day, at least here in America, they still are a majority of the electorate. And what is a liberal? But someone who's just really educated on what all is going on. Usually, it's an apolitical person that has general sympathies towards fairness, but we do a really poor job of actually reaching them. Uh, there's this kind of attitude of just being dismissive and often hostile and basically bounces them off without ever learning anything. And the uh, part of the reason I bring that up is uh, it part of that gets into why it is so difficult to and not just to get other power structures even conceived of besides are we going Republican or Democrat, um, which is kind of the sum total of most people's engagement in the in the civic system at all. The, there, there is a major problem with 
political literacy as a whole, which, I mean, it, it limits the ability of getting things like ranked choice voting, which would open up the floodgates for alternative uh, parties. As an Australian, I can highly recommend ranked choice voting. It's goddamn amazing. Um, also, yes. in a little bit, I want to tell you all about the single greatest um, democratic innovation that Australia has brought to bear, which I think I've talked to Frackle about before. Yes, you did. We'll and touch I look upon forward that. to you plugging it again because it is a fantastic idea. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, uh, that also goes to to a large extent the um, the court system as well. So, again, that lack of political literacy, and this actually extends not just to liberals, but many leftists. A lot of leftists, at least that I witness, get so deeply entrenched in the theory of their end game that they lose track of what the hell actually functions right now that effective change could be made today. And I get it. You do want to have some picture of what your destination is, but you want that so that you can identify steps you can take towards it. And I think that gets lost a lot of times, like with how, um, with how the court system operates, there's a lot that can be done by taking, by getting into positions of local power, you know, uh, city, uh, city council positions, mayoral positions, county commissioner positions, etc. You can actually affect a lot of change in how a localized criminal justice system happens. If you get someone who is, say, sympathetic to abolitionist thinking into a sheriff position, they can do a lot to change how a police department functions up to including just hamstringing the whole thing towards a restorative justice type model. And I do worry uh, that a lot of that gets kind of forgotten. Obviously, you know, trying to overturn the system, it seems very contradictory to leverage the system. But unless you're actually going to go out there shooting, like that's technically yeah. the, the cleanest way to do it is find ways to smuggle those ideas into positions of power where it can, where, where those changes can be made. So anyway, I've kind of rambled uh, on a few different things there. Sorry. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. Okay, buddy. A lot of folks on the left have like an immediate utopia or bust position, which really isn't helpful. Sorry, I went and oh, interrupted yeah. you there, baby grandma. Would you like to continue? Um, no, I mean, I just wanted to add working with the IWW, who is extremely direct action and being a pre-law student, um, has been extremely eye-opening to what you were talking about. Like, you know, misclassification for example, um, something that has probably happened to everybody on this call in the past seven years. And what a lot of you don't know is there's a seven-year statute of limitations and you can get up to 200% liquidated damages depending on the state you're in. That's a lot of money, okay? Um, and I <laughs> want people to know that, but people are so shut out to it. When I was, you know, I'm currently organizing a union for a small tech nonprofit and we're working with the IWW. And when I start talking about my legal aspect of it, immediate shut off. Oh, that's going to take too long. You know, everybody, nobody wants to play the long game, but we have to sometimes. We have to, we have to 
look at the micro and the mat like or the like the many like steps of the bigger goal like i like a smart goal um and i think you know if if for example like i don't think that a lot of union organizers understand how many um legal advocates like i'm a legal advocate currently i've helped a lot of people get settlement checks i'm not an attorney it was never legal advice for the record i still don't give legal advice that's not what i do i'm not an attorney but somehow i've been able to educate people in a way where magically they're getting money right and there's so many different things like like that you know we're just we're not taught about proper tax classification and so a lot of us end up being misclassified we don't understand the uh, statute of limitations. We don't understand the places we can report to the Department of Labor, the IRS. The IRS is actually incentivized in cases of misclassification because guess who wants their money? The IRS. They're not a big fan of tax fraud. It doesn't matter if a big company's doing it. In fact, they're more incentivized if a big company's, you know, stealing money from them. So that's why I want people to listen to me sometimes when it comes to like, hey, I know, I get it. Like the, these these um, powers that be, right? Like they suck. But at the same time, we do have rights. Those posters in the break room with the tiny, tiny little print, bring the microscope out. I've done this several times in work environments. I've said, hey, y'all, like, have you, have you read the poster in the break room? Because, <laughs> like, <laughs> it's there. Like, it legally has to be there, and it's there for a reason, right? And so, um, I don't know. I, I just really wanted to add that piece. Um, people don't understand misclassification. Like, please look it up. Um, if you are in New Jersey, you are in luck. If you're in California, you're super in luck. So I've got a quick general question for uh, anyone who's been involved in uh, organizing IRL groups. Um, so I know that that's uh, Baby Grandma and Dan P. It may apply to some others as well. Are there any tactics or ways of organizing the social spaces in the groups that you've found that have either uh, things that have made leftist infighting worse or things that have made it less likely? or that have helped you to resolve um, not just disagreements inside the group, but specifically this problem of leftist infighting where the disagreements are arising because of the, the friction from the mismatch in left-leaning ideological specifics. So I, mean, I'll, I'll since, I want to hit on a number of points, so I'll definitely answer that question first. Um, first, I mentioned facilitation because I think that's usually the thing that's kind of most helpful. Not most, maybe, but it's very, very helpful in stomping splits. For example, our local food, not bombs, a split between vegans and non-vegans, or rather most are vegans, but maybe they, they're okay with serving or, or giving away non-vegan dumpster stuff, um, but the other vegans yeah. don't want to. And and usually having good facilitation where it's like, OK, we're in an impasse. Let's actually just step away, take a break, not for three hours in one argument like some blood sport panels do, but actually have one hour breaks because no one wants to be in a meeting, even if it's entertaining, maybe for more than an hour at a time. Yeah. 
I wanted to hit on, oh yeah, that, um, so one other tool is to, when you brainstorm a group or any kind of collective action, there's a number of kind of things to work out using consensus. And for this, I, there are books just literally called consensus or a website with their own YouTube channel called sociocracy. They're a wonderful resource. Otherwise to set short, medium and long-term goals. And so that's one frame. Another frame is that many groups can have many different groups can have the same goals, like end game, as you put it, but have different strategies. And that's what they're fighting about. So like say DSA national, or maybe any kind of den dem entryist, they could be just as anti-capitalist as me or, or say uh, a, a syndicalist, whatever. And we're on the same page as far as being a leftist. But because they need to keep their position and work with Democrats as a Democrat, that, that rules out them any kind of collaboration with independent socialists of any kind. So they, they could, on one hand, talk like a radical, but then endorse cops on the other. Ain't that some so there, there are these real tensions between enter and outer. You know, I'm I kind of and this is over a decade of being an activist, or rather I came to the Green Party because it was kind of to me the middle ground between being independent, direction oriented, direct action oriented, but also at the same time using our system and participating it, but participating it on our terms as leftists, which doesn't give us too much notoriety, but we do have many victories. We run hundreds of races every year, and we actually win a few dozen. We what was it? We have 200 elected Greens, and they are half mostly local positions. Uh, we have eight state legislators. We'll keep learning that factoid. And, and of course, we want to expand that. But it's hard to do that when there's, say, the nonprofit industrial complex. So many groups with the same ideology as us, but they are banned from collaborating with us. Sometimes it's more of a kleptocracy thing where someone who's a county employee, and because there's, in Albany, we've had a political machine forever, that they were not allowed to publicly help me, you know, as I ran for county executive. And, and other things like that. Let's say, oh, yeah, and like, say, local local DSA, you know, many DSA chapters chose to not endorse anyone in the general election, since many of them, you know, put so much of their time into who to endorse in the Dem primary. And then, yeah. so, so two DSA chapters endorsed Harry Hawkins, so many others simply said, we're not endorsing anyone. In fact, that sounds irresponsible. Bernie was, Bernie, Bernie was the last straw we're not really going to do electoralism wow anymore. that is crazy irresponsible but that's not true well then on the other hand this year of course they endorse can dems in primaries that they liked mm -hmm. so so, so, so it kind of feels like it's done you could okay i'm not going to frame it like that of course because some of them are my friends and, and the dsa chapter is currently doing um the free store um which is kind of like the mutual aid, uh, it's clothes, like food, not bombs, but everything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but did that answer your question for the most part? 
that um, spaces work yes, better did. when you Thank have you. when you have good facilitation. Because the reason why post Occupy Wall Street, this is after the encampment was swept by Democratic mayors, was I joined immediately a consensus working group. It was basically me and eight other people where because one of the things we saw happening was that the General Assembly was really good as a recruitment tool, but as it was run to be amazingly inclusive, really bad at making concrete decisions. And this was sort of on purpose that there was really bad facilitation. Uh, or mm. we wanted to study why it was so, why it was bad and what would be better. And so we kind of came back to the GA like, six months later with our recommendations. And by this time, the amount of people in Zuccotti Park was 100 uh, at, at a you know monthly or weekly meeting. And, uh, and of course, it didn't really fizzled out because there's just so many provocateurs or people who are just there to hear themselves talk and, and so on. And we were just, you know, some self-appointed working group. So what authority do we have in, in a crowd of anarchists? But hey, I mean, I didn't even know I was an anarchist before Occupy, and I was like, "Holy shit, doing direct democracy, cool." <laughs> yeah. Can I uh, so answer the question too? Because I have like a very like structured way that I kind of so facilitation is really important. Definitely agree with you there. Super, super important. But so is understanding people's capacity before they join the group. And this is what I feel like so many people don't do right. So in my collective, we had when um, somebody was interested in joining the collective, there's a conversation. It's a collaborative conversation about, hey, uh, do you want to just be a one off volunteer? Do you want to just be uh, somebody who donates? Do you want to be somebody who is in decision making? Do you want to be somebody who's in leadership? And what do all of those different stages look like? Do you want to be a chapter director? That, that contains all of this type of responsibility. Do you want to be a, just a collective member, which contains, and we almost like created like job descriptions, but um, you know, not actual jobs. And so that people knew what they were coming into before they officially came into it. And I feel like that was imperative. Because especially when we're talking about, you know, people who might not have as much time to devote or even just in these conversations, they're very interpersonal conversations I would have one on one with new members who are ready to come into the collective, really finding out like what is their objective and making it a collaborative conversation about what can this person provide? right? What is your access? What is the capacity? And then from there, trust is built. And those conversations are not one-time conversations, right? So those conversations happen regularly. Uh, another thing that I really, um, I'm a peer counselor and I do support groups. And so something that I bring into my organizing work um, is actually DBT modalities, which is a form of therapy, which sounds kind of strange, but DBT is um, a form of therapy where it's a skill-based therapy. And there's a lot of interpersonal skill, um, interpersonal skills that are encompassed in DBT. 
So I use a lot of DBT modalities in, in my everyday life when I'm engaging with individuals. So there's a lot of de-escalation techniques. Uh, one that was mentioned that I think is uh, really powerful is taking space and time. You know, instead of just being reactionary, giving ourselves times to process, right? To really process. Coping ahead if a conversation is going to be really hard and you anticipate that this is going to be a really tough topic. What do we have in place? You know, planning ahead, coping ahead for these situations that we already know are going to be tense. Another thing is just um, when you're dealing with in-person um, organizing, I feel like it can be... I haven't had a lot of conflict within my collective, to be honest with you. Fortunate. Yeah, I do feel very fortunate, but I feel like it's because I do really well with vetting and I do super well with this, these, these check-ins, right? Because there's going to be de facto so leaders no matter with your, what. So. With your vetting process, yes. do you think that it's a matter of primarily a matter of expectation setting? primarily a matter of making sure the right people join or is it more a fusion of the two it is totally a fusion and there's also an education process so we had an lms system or a learning maintenance system that helped explain what is mutual aid what is the difference between what we are doing and what is a nonprofit doing you know the basis of like and even before we would show up to a location. So my organization is called Metamorphosis Collective. We don't gender our clothing. Um, <laughs> we don't gender our clothing, right? So we need to have a gender neutral um, changing room. And so we would do trainings with any place that we planned on popping up at. You know, hey, if you don't have a gender neutral training or changing room, then we just can't pop up at that location, right? And so making, making, having those conversations and doing the prep work and then the post work too. So it, it's really, I think it's for me, the success that I have found with um, my in-person organizing is really just about being very intentional, being extremely intentional, thoughtful and planning ahead and then following up. So there's pre-work and there's post-work. Yeah, so there's pre-work and post-work. And I think that the pre-work and post-work is being left out a lot. You know, there's some people who just want to give you money. And hey, that's fine by me. And you figure that out in a conversation with them, right? And then there's some people who want to help you develop systems uh, and processes. You know, you find that out. And, and it's really just about, you know, I would let any person in my collective come up with their own title. And, um, you know, based on, we would, you know, map it out together. And based on that, you know, they've been able to move on in their careers. Like I can say I've been an executive yeah. director for four years. I'm 25. Like, are you kidding me? Like, that's going to really open doors for me. And it has. Um, and, you know, I, my creative director now is a creative director at a real company. <laughs> um, so it's like things like that. You know, what are your goals in the future? Can I yeah, support Figuring you out ways to facilitate the other people in the group, making sure that they're getting something out of the involvement so that they have an in 
personal investment and reason to not get into petty squabbles because everyone there involved collectively wants to get stuff out of what's happening, both from a personal and a a moral community perspective. Yes. The mutual part of mutual aid is left out so often. But what is in it for me is how we exist in this world because it's how we have to. And in an idealistic utopian society, like wouldn't have to be that way, but people want to know what's in it for me. And so I provide that to them. And to be honest with you, like, I think that that is why the communities and the movements that I start don't just end when I leave. Right. Like I started my, my mutual aid collective in Orlando, Florida. And now I live in Philly and that chapter is still running. In fact, they have a new um, project that they're taking on. They're going to try community fridges, right? Like it's that's, it's, that's really the dream, isn't it? To make something that lasts for longer than you do. I, I really, really want mm-hmm. that. Yeah, that to contact be... information on that group. Yeah. Oh yeah. To, to know. Metamobileboutique.com. Oh, yeah. um, if you're interested in learning more. Metamobileboutique.com. So we we are in a very transitional phase right now here in Philly because <laughs> I'm poor and so I can't afford the rent at our warehouse space here. But we're we're kind of um, you know we're metamorphosizing, <laughs> so it's fine. And the thing is too, it's like my expectations when I was 21 and homeless and I started this project because I didn't have clothes. That was it. I didn't yeah. have clothes. And I didn't like the way that it felt just going to a clothing swap with all the clothes on the floor. And are they clean? Are they dirty? I have to run over Stacy. And does this actually fit me? And is this going to, you know, have rips and tears in it? And now with COVID health concerns, you know, I switched everything to virtual. I do virtual shopping sessions. I did like QVC style live. You know, it's about it's about the innovation. And the thing is like, (laughs) I am really bad about this. I'm the world's worst boss to myself because I've been doing this for four years and, you know, not getting paid. And so that's where the sustainability comes in is like rolling with the punches and kind of like, you know, knowing when I have to take a step back. Also knowing when people are overworking themselves and not encouraging that. Um so this so i i was intending to step back to the question that taj asked a while ago but i'm sorry i need to derail slightly more um you mentioned something that is in my my specific wheelhouse one of the things that i've been pushing for with my channel one of the reasons that i do what i do with painting miniatures while responding to political videos I think that in activist circles, there's a lot of burnout that people experience. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, leftists are very passionate. It's easiest, easy for us to throw our entire existence into trying to make the world better. And the world can be a really harsh place, and it can be very easy to burn out from that. So what I've been doing with my channel and with the Discord community that I'm trying to build uh, is trying to make it kind of a shared progressive hobby space. Um, so to encourage people to engage in their hobbies, passions, and interests for their own mental health reasons. So that at the end of the day, you can clock off, you can get off the internet, disconnect with whatever bullshit arguments are going on, or even just decompress from, you know, having spent a long week helping out at your local soup kitchen. 
pick up a book, do some writing, paint a miniature, learn some juggling, edit some video, take some photos of your beautiful houseplants, find hobbies and passions that resonate with you so you can take care of your mental health in your own time and on your own way. I want to jump in with... Real quick before you jump in, what we model to the people that we are organizing is what will happen. So I was burning myself out over and over and over again and freaking out and everybody else was doing that too. And I realized what you did that we needed to have play and rest. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I want to, I want to, it's very on. easy to not incorporate that. So let's um, let others talk. So, Kayla is amazingly right about everything she's been talking about. Uh, I just want to add on some language, uh, vocab like roles, uh, like in terms of like job descriptions and expectations. Like, what are people's roles? And, uh, another thing mentioned was uh, the money collecting. And, you know, I was in this one little ad hoc cause, it was to basically block a casino from being built in my city. And we knew. And I was basically joining with some uh, suburb suburbanites to do this uh, because the casino would have been between city of Albany and neighbors. We knew we, we'd only be doing this for a month. So when we did a kind of big public meeting to gather support and, and get some news coverage for everyone who didn't want this casino, we even had like a speaker. Uh, we had someone come up at the end, want to give us like this fat check. And we basically like, we didn't turn it down, but it's like, well, we don't have a bank account to accept this. And the guy was like disgusted with our disorganization. Like, oh, you guys don't know what you're doing. Of course, we all knew what we were doing. We were all seasoned in various ways. But it's just like, we knew that in a month, if we were successful, we wouldn't do that, need this. And plus all of us didn't really need the money because the uh, they were like, you know, suburban professionals. And I was kind of practically full-time activist. Now, I don't know what the average age here is, but I'm 32. And in Occupy, this is 2012. Yeah. Um, I'm uh, 33 myself. Thank you. I'm 25. Yay. 33, going to be 34 next month. Undisclosed. Happy almost birthday. <laughs> so, so, so as a, one of the uh, 30-somethings, I want to point out, so like I've kind of, so after Occupy, or rather during Occupy, there, there's a sense of panic, especially when you say, notice that Greenland has completely melted this year. There's a panic of like, you know, got to do things now, right? And Kayla pointed out that we're not doing our prep work in organizing, or that it's needed and people need to know what the prep work is. Kind of like how when you're learning how to cook, you kind of need to know how to chop things first or... Otherwise, you just stare at the ingredients and you're like, I guess I'll just order fresh direct. Now, what the hell is? Oh, yeah. So uh, avoiding burnout. So there's a sense of panic. And so like in the year after leaving college, coming home, college was in New York City. I was getting into some burnout because I was trying to do everything possible. Um, multiple working groups at Occupy Albany, trying to keep it, things active um, as people were starting to attrition out and losing interest, going to their own more individualized projects or causes, uh, which where Occupy was kind of bringing everybody kind of together for, for a big jam. But I started getting really upset with a particular activist who... She's like 60 something. So she kind of just needed to like 
she didn't give me she gave me kind of a, not so much a verbal slap but i made a word of encouragement that i was put taking too much on myself uh mm. putting it on my shoulders a similar speech i uh, that occurred uh that was given to me during college in my thesis year we don't call it we did we didn't qualify for thesis i'm going to call it thesis year where I was doing the secular club. I was going to other things and I was doing an Occupy and I had all my classes. And basically I wasn't keeping up with my schoolwork. My thesis was suffering. I was doing half the work of my compatriots. And this is even without doing all nighters like most architecture students do. And I had a professor just kind of say like, Dan, you're doing a lot of things that you're passionate about but you have to drop something. So like having a limit of doing like mm. two projects at a time, even Damn. though, and that's I mean, if it's too. a necessity, and now if it's a necessity like Kayla being homeless, you have to do a lot of everything to to get get what you need. And, yeah. and, that's, and, that's, and that's where we need to put ourselves out there for the struggling, of course. Like, well, that's- so I- that's what I, makes me mad is like I was 21 and homeless and I was able to redistribute thousands of dollars worth of clothing. And you want to tell me that people can't help? Like, that's the part that my brain doesn't comprehend because I'm sorry, but like I was 21 and homeless and I was able to build something. And I, I want yeah. more people to see that, to see themselves in positions of like, um, I don't like the word power, but in positions of abundance resource yeah. and, oh. and control, maybe control is a bad word too, yeah. but you know, another, I mean? well, another vocab word that it's used in, in our anarchist spaces is underliner. Someone who's responsible for getting something done, but isn't really in a place of power. They're just an underliner. So people just kind of have agreed that like so i call myself the serving captain i was an underliner for the serving to make sure that things were set up i was responsible to go and open the space up and so on being a in a management committee you know underlining things because you know it's like um adhocracy you know where leadership everyone can be a leader for something some of the time and learning how to be a leader and be leaderful is another buzzword from occupy is something you learn when you're in a general assembly and everybody has and in good facilitation you you're ever, everyone actually has an equal say or a good as much as a say they want and everyone can actually feel like a leader because they are and there isn't a hierarchy of voices or whatever um, but when the decision is consensus upon then there's a unity of action in the vanguard of sense but but one thing that I want to point out seriously is one observation I came to in one of my episodes this year as I was talking about strategies and other things, uh, left-wing culture war, I call it, between ML groups and anarchist groups, especially since the pandemic started, but it kind of existed beforehand as well, that despite all the differences in ideology, but maybe not goals or strategies, they're all essentially doing, all doing the same thing, which is mutual aid, kind of prefigurative politics, which is where, you know, you practice what you want to actually happen. We want a worker economy, and then we need to be starting co-ops, um, for example. But also having communistic goals, 
at least if there's radical or revolutionary politics. So yeah. these are all independent lefties I'm talking about. This goes um, back to we, the we, to the bus analogy or metaphor rather, where we're we're all on the same yeah, bus. Yeah, yeah. We just have to yeah, yeah, yeah. different stops. Of course, we have to recognize that sometimes. Just pull back and recognize, even if we don't necessarily like the passengers that we're on the bus with. Yeah, just a little bit. I wanted to point out too, like some of the things I've learned from local anarchist groups too, is that not every project has to be like 100% let's go, go, go. Like mm. one of the, one of the big things is too, like, you know, sometimes just having a book club or, you know, doing a gardening project or things like that, things that are fun, things that are, you know, still helping, but they're more relaxed. They're more like, okay, we can discuss a book or we can, you know, go and make this neighborhood look better or, hey, Building let's go. community and connections both within the left and within our broader communities around us. Exactly. You know, you're doing that and it's not like it's not work work. It's just you're still doing something, but you're doing it in a way that makes you feel, OK, I'm not burnt out. I'm not constantly going 100 percent. Burnout is one of the biggest causes of fighting i think and if we can all just sit there and be like oh hey you know i'm you know this month we've done this action this action and this action let's go you know let's go read a book for a little bit or let's go you know let's go to the park pick up some trash and maybe then go and do some gardening it's still acting it's still work but it's still it's more of a laid back yeah. You don't have to constantly be thinking about how trash fire the world is. There's also a um, a uh, social pragmatic purpose behind that. And this is something that Red Ham and I touched on in our conversation recently. Um, if you, with your group that you're working with, have uh, some common ground interests beyond your activism, you are more likely to see them as like friends and and uh, have that camaraderie whereas if the only thing you know about them is their politics and the work that they're doing then that is the sole criteria you will judge them on like i think that's a cause of a lot of leftists in fighting is literally mm. the only thing that people know about each other is their political ideation mm. and um, you're a lot more if forgiving even. about and and flexible about political ideation of people that you are personally close to, um, mm-hmm. that you're that you're friends with, and having shared That's hobbies, you know, doing community gardening, book club stuff, etc., builds that that uh, kinship, builds that relationship, uh, and allows um, a lot more understanding as well as a lot more willingness to listen and learn from one another. I think that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Like looking back in life and I'm thinking of like who I knocked heads with the most. It's not someone that I've, that I've had a meal with. It's usually someone that I barely know. Or maybe only in like a signal chat or maybe at an action or something. And that's who I'm more likely to have beef with. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. You have no skin in the game on that person. That's why it's a lot of sense, right? This is a like this is a tactic that's used by de-radicalization people to uh, kind of move people away from positions of bigotry as well. So the more you get to know people within a certain group and get to realize that they are just people just like you, the more likely you are to be able to build empathy with them. Mm -hmm. So the more 
we get to know and get along with different kinds of leftists, the more likely we are to be able to just get along with each other when it counts. Uh, and I think that, so we live, like a lot of the world that we live in at the moment is mediated through online spaces and online spaces have a habit of forming echo chambers. Some of this is a function of just forming safe spaces. So making sure that people within those spaces can feel that they are safe and welcome there, that necessitates the exclusion of some other kinds of people and some other kinds of ideas. But this can create a situation where we become more and more locked off and more and more insular as well. So with our online spaces, I do wonder if we need to start having designated kind of community spaces which follow these safe like more of these safe space restrictions and designated activism spaces where we need to accept that we might be interacting with people who do have a bit of a different outlook but we're all here for a specific purpose with a specific goal yeah the few times i've seen people try to combine those two functions it hasn't worked Similar to meetings, um, mm. th there should be business meetings and social meetings. Yeah. And so a lot of Occupy, but of course it could happen anywhere, where you combine both. Or because you don't have a social meeting, meetup, or whatever, people socialize and spend half or most of the time at the meeting socializing, catching up, instead of actually talking about the business or the work or the chores mm. that need to be done. Mm. And thinking yeah. of things like as chores, you know, in abolishing work, it's more like you make everything into a chore, something that needs to be done, but something that isn't really a big deal when you're doing it. it um, I think it's all about the framing. I like to think about the framing of like, like I'll do right now, I am um, doing all my work remote. So I found all the parks that have Wi-Fi and outlets, right? And so I have picnic every day and that's how I work, right? It's about the framing and the context. And also with this group that I'm organizing, I was like, hmm, maybe we could have a picnic. And guess what? It was great. People brought food. We got to talk about, you know, things outside of just like, you know, we're blowing bubbles. Somebody brought a hammock. It was awesome. And I just, I wish that there was more of that going on. Um, and I, like, I, I also am creating, um, I'm the co-founder of a mental health resource for adults online called Lavender Space. And that is also a radical space for people to receive community care and support, a safer space like what was just being talked about. Uh, we have an online uh, community that's growing and we also have right now um, a autistic adult support group and a uh, body doubling group that helps with task inertia for people with neurodivergence so that we can get um, our things done together and, and in community. It's all about being in community. It's not just, these are the people that I organize with. The people I organize with are family at this point. Like Damn. I'm in community with them. Yeah, my Sorry. cat has been like, yeah. no, well, we not have my been cat. Going for like two and a half hours. Yeah, so far. I didn't even really go this long, but this is getting breaks. good. Like, it's where I, I hope, I hope you guys are. Um, all, I hope this is mutual for everybody. But this has been kind of dry at some points, but at other points, I'm hitting like epiphanies from what you guys are saying. Like, I didn't even think about burnout until you brought up burnout. Like, I'm just really? thinking. Yeah. 
important. I didn't even know. I've been doing this for so long that burnout it. has been part of the like my consciousness, probably since college, I guess. But I mean, so, but then there's like the work process and work ethic culture of mm-hmm. like, yeah, architecture yeah. students should just be doing all nighters all the time. Right? Yeah, it's normal. Just, I, just drink mm-hmm. more coffee, right? Mm-hmm. I yeah. only did two overnights, and those were basically, you know, two finals in the last two years. Yeah, and yeah, I did um, theater production in university. Um, and when it comes for time to produce your show, everything is go 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 until it's finished. <laughs> Sleep doesn't happen. <laughs> and but yeah, like yeah, building a party is a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, and when you're running a marathon, you need to drink your water. You need to stop from time to time to fucking. Well, it, you it need also, your times of your times are just walking, and then you're gonna have your times when you speed up a bit, and then you're gonna bring it down to a walk again. It also season. colors what. Wow. Um, yeah. As as a human being, uh, how you view a certain thing or a, a certain uh, activity or group that you interact with, if the only actual experience you have with a group like with activism is technically negative because it is a strain on you on your mental and physical capacity and your resources you're going to be a lot more jaded whereas if you do mix it up if you have actual positive interactions i mean i get that yes the work itself is fulfilling but you know, those who do it, you know, it, it is a bit more than that. <laughs> um, have fun. You gotta have yeah. fun. You have to have some You're fun. You're not having I fun. You should probably that. stop what you're doing. And this um, is my not-so-subtle way to segue into reminding Radham to discuss the greatest democratic innovation ever. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is this is off-topic. But so, look, Australia has um, some pretty decent election stuff. You know, we've got uh, preferential voting, so you can specify not just what where you want the pa- your vote to go by party, but Report, you can do it by candidate if you like. Uh, proportional representation in some instances, but not others. We need more of it. We've got mandatory voting as well, yeah. but that isn't our greatest innovation. Our greatest innovation is something that you don't need a legal structure to do. It's the goddamn democracy sausage. Every time we have a local, state, or federal election, Basically, every single polling place has a barbecue. A local community organization will come and do fundraising. They'll do a sausage sizzle. These days, it's become a lot more diverse. You've got vegan sausages. You've got volumi rolls. And it's like two bucks. You show up. You get your democracy sausage. You munch on it, and you stand in line waiting to vote. And then you vote, and you go home. That is the opposite of Florida. Oh, my God. Myself and so many of my friends, so many people I know are like, oh, it's election day. I'm so hungover. Oh, wait, it's election day. I can go and get a democracy sausage. Yes. Mm. It it builds this positive association with wanting to go and vote. And it's this community thing. It raises money for like, you know, local rec clubs or scouts groups or community halls. Yeah, that's a Democracy great idea. Sausages. Wow, 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 wow. That's tough to do and in Florida. Can out water bottles feet. is illegal at some points. And it, yeah, well, it could be depending. Well, see, in New York, it's a ele- only electioneering isn't allowed within a hundred feet of the door. 
So maybe yeah. a cookout or some community event is allowed. And that's something that's never yeah. done. And because um, this mostly because in Albany, well, in hmm. Albany, we had a political machine that would, uh, no proof, of course, exists because it was completely ad hoc and under the table. But um, if you voted, you got $5. Um, you would have people kind of handing out $5. It was called the $5 vote. It only kind of ended maybe in the 70s. But we don't, that's the thing. That sounds this cool. No kind of uh sure that sounds Um, cool as hell yeah well and then that's kind of the way well the political machine we had was like to identify partisan is the question of course was it Uh, so it's like the democratic party or the republican party saying hey you vote i miss i miss i think i miss um i misspoke you democrats get five dollars for voting for democrats even better and so it was a very yeah. Well, this was a kleptocracy, and most Democrats in Albany are very conservative. Mm-hmm. So, so um, oh wait, it's not it's not what you think. Okay. Um, if, it, if you want to try instituting, not, yeah. If you want to try setting up democracy sausage stuff in America, getting around the anti-electioneering laws. Um, so be very clear to be not be affiliated with any party yeah, or yeah. group. Tie it to a well-known fundraising for a well-known known and well-loved local community cause, like an animal shelter, something everyone can get behind, uh, and charge a nominal fee to get a sausage. This means that you know, you're not gifting it out to people, so that should help mm. to get around like the, the Florida law with not being able to give water or food to people. It ties into the intrinsic American love of capitalism, if they're telling you not to to sell sausages, can fundraise for a local thing. What you can hate capitalism, mate. Get up, get out of here, it's America. Yeah. get out of here, it's America. Yeah, I th- police yeah. association I think that a good, does oh, cookouts all the time. Yeah, I think that yeah, a good yeah, workaround really good is idea, also yeah. like they give out stickers in Florida. Still, at least they still do that, right? They'll give you the damn sticker. I think that maybe if if maybe if progressives in in Central Florida where I live. Had something at like a local cool watering hole, like I'm trying to think of watering holes that would probably be open to it. Maybe like somewhere like the Nook, which is kind of like a bookstore, part bar, part bar slash bookstore. And it's like, hey, turn in your I voted sticker. Here's a free beer or half off beer. I think that's pretty cool. I don't mean to interrupt you, Taj, but the Nook did something like that. Oh, they did? Oh my gosh. I'm behind on the curve, damn it. Yeah, you you must not have been around, but the Nook um, has been politically involved and engaged. Um, you should definitely hit up Danny, um, my former boss. I used to work for this person who opened this place that Taj is talking about. But yeah, no, Danny is absolutely open to stuff like that. And the other people at the Nook are as well. So like, it's already been done, number one. And number two, like maybe get in contact with them. Like um, that's a great I can idea. Put you in contact. Nah, I'm friends with them on well. Facebook too, Kayla. Come okay, on. Okay, I'm not out of the loop. Here. All right, I'm not all the way out of the loop. <laughs> I just they did something like that, um, and this was a couple years ago. It was like right when I moved, um, and he, I I thought it was like really cool. So I think you know there's opportunity there for that to happen again. Yeah, that that sounds like a slam dunk idea. I like that a lot. So I Whoa, like, maybe something like that with local candidates. Other people jump in. So I wanted to relate two more like kind of concepts. One like 
the dark side, you know, fear and hatred, their source is kind of ignorance. And that goes into the political education mm-hmm. where people aren't probably even aware of, well, yeah, what class people are kind of in or what kind of privileges and, um, and so on. Like, I have 13000 in my bank account, but I never really make more than that in a year, ever. But I rent from my parents, for example, so I keep my costs incredibly low. But I want to also explain um, something in terms of leftist collaboration in my area. So last year, or more than a year ago, we formed the Capital District United Left Front. So various leftist groups of an all all, all of a radical persuasion plus the DSA, uh, which locally speaking is because they do tenant organizing yeah. and stuff, uh, including just, some... just checking not yeah. to be confused with the People's Front of the Capital District. No such thing exists. Sorry, um, obscure Monty Python joke. No, no, it's, is it obscure? <laughs> I mean, I, I literally like, I, I literally saw like a uh, someone talking about like rebel writing and how like it's such a cliche of like eventually we gotta stop making jokes about the judean people's front and actually organize anyway um but in this case uh it was all younger set you know under 40 i suppose and all but mostly 20 somethings and 30 somethings uh various groups some of them communist clubs that i didn't even know existed but mostly because they are social groups first and this comes into play later so one of the one of the things that we've done in the past year is take over the reins from the aging 60s hippies of the organizing of our local May Day event. We always have a May Day event, and this time it was actually organized by the Socialist Party U.S. chapter uh, as underliners, but with support from all the other groups in the United Left Front. Uh, and it, it went really well. And we'll probably keep doing that every year from now on. But when it came to doing other collaboration, we can't really, we could agree on one thing that we weren't going to focus on running anybody for election this year, even though local elections are what are happening. We just consider ourselves to not have the resources. We don't have the numbers. We got to be doing outreach first. Of course, are we doing that this year? Not really. Um, we each have, we each kind of each group has its own sub goals, so to speak. Ours and as Greens is to get our ballot line back, which was removed by former Governor Como. But uh, what do you mean but, by okay. your ballot line? Uh, well, in order to run candidates easily, because petitioning is extremely difficult. Oh yeah, so as an Australian, you're probably not aware that America is probably one of the most undemocratic of democracies in the in the world. I know we this, require, I'm just not familiar with the term. Yeah. Yeah. We have um in order to okay, so when you run for office, an enormous amount of petition signatures are required. Of uh, like think a thousand 10, for even a local office. Like a thousand. Yeah, wow. Ten thousand if it's a That's say state cool, assembly. Yeah. yeah. And if it's Congress, you need fifty thousand. And you need, um, I think we need like 100,000 for governor. Yeah. Uh, and that's so if you don't have a ballot line. If you have a ballot line, you only need... Super skewed towards incumbents and famous people. Right. If you can afford an army of petitioners. And you only get a month to collect them, by the way. Uh. States like Illinois and Georgia have extremely high. Basically, to keep anyone who isn't a major party candidate or, you know, and you have to play a game with the establishment you do. Um, from running. 
And getting a ballot line is kind of a holy grail when you are doing independent politics. And that's why there's such an argument about like in, among DSAers of how we need to run as Dems. It's the only way we can run anybody, even though that really takes a lot of your leverage away once you're in office. There's nothing more powerful yeah, than having suddenly someone you're beholden to the DNC line and yada yada. More so than a lot of entry seem to think. So okay, so as Greens like you know in New York, we're concerned about that and organizing for that and running a good a gubernatorial race because that's how we get our ballot line back. And so and, and communist clubs just want to keep being clubs. So when in the summer last month or so, when they were going to have when they had their last in the United Front meeting, they uh, basically they didn't get quorum or they a lot half the groups didn't want to have a meeting because they didn't want to collaborate on anything. Mm. They I guess maybe it sadly, I mean, I, I can only guess is it because Biden's president, you don't feel an urgency to do leftist projects. Uh, or is it because even though we're all these separate groups and we could all agree that we should have a good Mayday event, we seem to not be able to, we don't have the same strategy as far as a united left project. Can I? And that's a... something that Zero Books mentions all the time, that there's no united, there's no project. Anymore. Yeah. Can I? All right. Um, I've noticed that, that, a lot, that a lot of organizing this year, 2021 in particular, hasn't really been as strong as 2020. I think there are a few factors why, and maybe it is Biden's president. Um, so people, so people feel less inclined to like push left for some reason now. That's a possibility. I don't have evidence for or against that really, but I think it might just be people are still kind of like tired from last year, even though it's late. Like what is it? Q3 2021 right now. Um, but I don't think this trend's going to continue in 2022. I really do think we're going to see like more of an uptick. Things get more intense again. And then some, things might die down again in 2023, but I think election years is a big push for a lot of people. Um, so, that's that's what I'm hoping. I don't um, want I don't want 2021 to happen next year or in 2024 because so in, in so this year hasn't been hot. 